You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Our sixth lesson we will move from Aristotle's criticism of tyranny into some more contemporary issues and ideas of Maritain and Simon on what's called structural pluralism. But to take our bearings by Aristotle and to finish this discussion of the claims to rule, kingship is rule by one on the basis of virtue. We saw Aquinas mention that. Now the problem here is, as Aristotle sees it, if there's an individual of such outstanding virtue and a benefactor, he would rule for the common good with the consent of all, and that would be the king. The problem with this idea is that politics will disappear. I've mentioned this previously. There is only one citizen, the king, and we've reduced political life, the polis, to a household. It's the rule of the father over children. Rule of the one is just not even practical, Aristotle says, because there will always be advisors and friends. So we head back in the direction of aristocracy or oligarchy. One needs more than two eyes and two hands and two ears. Aristotle says, we need an assembly. Why not back to the many assembled? And I've also mentioned the problem of succession, Aristotle well knows. And this becomes the stuff of great Shakespearean tragedy, is that succession is not always assured. So Aristotle thinks even though kingship is a good form of government, it's not really political. Perhaps it's not even possible. And it can lead to its own form of instability. If anything, kingship stands as a warning to any of the claims not to demand the fullness of political power. As a counter to the king, Aristotle says, law ought to rule. Law, he says, is neutral and impartial, and with it we bid God and reason to rule. People are always partial to their own case. Hence, law allows for equality and rotation of rule. The real problem of government that has to be examined is tyranny. It's rule by the one, not by a virtuous man for the common good but rule by one who turns out to be vicious for private interest. Aristotle has a very interesting analysis. I've already mentioned this part too, that extreme or unmixed democracy or oligarchy tends towards tyranny. See, if political life is about the rational animal, that humans have speech, who can act and deliberate, Tyranny represents the down, dark side 
of human association. We could say the tyrant represents silence and violence. There is no longer speech and deliberation. There is no longer action but rule by coercion and violence. Aristotle does say in his analysis in book 5, chapters 10 and 11, that tyranny is often a compound of the extreme forms of oligarchy and democracy and is the worst form of government because it's composed of two bad forms with the perversions and errors of both. He further will then explain in Book 5, Chapter 11, the devices the tyrant uses to try to stabilize his regime. Briefly mentioned, they involve breeding mutual distrust among the citizens. The tyrannical leader cannot abide friendship. He wants to isolate people and make them strangers and enemies. He must undermine other forms of association. Secondly, he must make them incapable of action. See, remember the slave is unable to initiate action. So the tyrant is properly called a despot, the ruler over slaves. So the tyrant would want its citizens to be ignorant and passive and to lack means of action like private property. And finally, Aristotle says the tyrant seeks to break the spirit of the people through fear and terror, humiliation, setting up dependency and asking for submission. So I think here we reach the limit of politics, according to Aristotle, is tyranny. What we then appreciate in light of tyranny is the importance of freedom, the need for assemblies and associations which are intermediate between the individual and the state, such as family and business, clubs, unions, and guilds. In a word, friendship from in such groups forms nodes of power from which arise ways to check arbitrary rule. It makes us respect action and the ability to initiate action, to be free to acquire information and to be educated, to develop abilities and habits of action, and again to possess means to act, and to have dignity secure and free from terror. So today I think we can update this notion in light of totalitarianism, that totalitarianism is a form of tyranny, perhaps an even greater one because of the extent of its repression and control and the new elements of ideology and technology. I think Maritain and Simone are more enthusiastic and insistent upon democracy as the best form of government today because of the danger of tyranny. So this is what leads Maritain to formulate the principle of structural pluralism. If we turn to Maritain, page 21 of Man in the State, over to page 22, he says, we must fear today the paternalist state, the state not only supervising from the political point of view the common good, which is normal, 
but directly organizing, controlling, managing, and judging the interest of public welfare and to demand that all forms of economic, commercial, industrial, and cultural life be controlled by the government. This is often called nationalization, but in reality it's statization. He says, the fact remains that the state has skill and competence in administrative, legal, and political matters, but is inevitably dull and awkward and as a result oppressive and injudicious in all other fields. To become a boss or manager in business or industry or a patron of art or a leading spirit in the affairs of culture, science and philosophy is against the nature of such an impersonal topmost agency. So Maritain, I think here, shows a conservative principle in the defense of freedom and to protect freedom and the common good through structural pluralism. Now by structural pluralism he means that there will be, this is on page 23 of his Man in the State, free initiative from particular groups, working communities, cooperative agencies, unions, associations, and so on. What is at stake here, he says, is a question of freedom. On page 67 of Man in the State, he says, the pluralist principle means that everything in the body politic which can be brought about by particular organs or societies under the state, which are born out of free initiative, should be brought about by those particular organs or societies. Second, that vital energy should rise from the people through these intermediate groups. Now, the exact term for this in light of the political philosophy developed here is a principle of subsidiarity. The principle of subsidiarity is probably best formulated by Yves R. Simone in his book, Philosophy of Democratic Government. To review that, let's look at the principle of subsidiarity, or sometimes called the principle of autonomy. It's on page 129. In it, Simone says, no task which can be satisfactorily fulfilled by the smaller unit should ever be assumed by the larger unit. It's a simple principle, but hard to apply. I'll say it again. No task which can be satisfactorily fulfilled by the smaller unit should ever be assumed by the larger unit. Again, this means, for example, in education, parents as the primary educators. That role should not be usurped by a state agency. Again, that's not to argue against public education. It's just to say that parents should have a say in how their children are educated. Certainly, though, I think this principle would argue in favor of diversity and pluralism in educational institutions, so that if the state controls a monopoly on education, it is in some way a threat to the common good and to the freedom and excellence of its citizens. 
Simone goes on to say on the next page 130, he says, it's perfectly obvious that there is more life and unqualifiedly greater perfection in a community whose parts are full of initiative and not merely instruments transmitting the initiative of the whole. So again, the idea is these Thomists are arguing against the unqualified power of the modern state. I think in very Aristotelian manner to see that ultimately this is a principle of tyranny if any types of initiative taken by citizens or intermediate associations is either prohibited, that's certainly not a problem in our country, but it is in others, but I would say there's an equal danger if these initiatives are rendered void or sterile for various obstacles of taxes or regulations or ways in which this free initiative of groups is not allowed to manifest itself. Another statement of this principle of subsidiarity, if we skip ahead some, is found on page 207 of Philosophy of Democratic Government when he said the danger of the state going to the point of having a monopoly over all the concerns of the citizens, such as education, and he mentions health care and other matters. He wrote this back in 1950. So this idea of the principle of subsidiarity is a vital teaching to Aristotelian and Thomist political philosophy. It's also become an important principle for Catholic social teaching generally. Now, it's interesting the way Simone argues for this because his argument is it's not an argument against authority. That is, a matter of fact, the text he uses from Thomas Aquinas show that authority is required for the exercise of freedom. That is, autonomy and authority go together. I will just briefly mention the argument here that Simone makes. He takes it from an obscure passage of Thomas Aquinas involving some questions of metaphysics and the good. But the idea here is that particular goods should be properly defended by particular persons. And this matters greatly for the common good itself. That is, Simone says that one function of authority is to formally will the common good. There must be an authority who is concerned about and wills the common good. But, he says, it matters for the common good that particular persons also pursue a particular good. And so there is a balancing. It's an argument against excessive unity in the state. And he actually cites, and we can fruitfully go back to Aristotle's Politics, Book 2, Chapter 5, in which Aristotle talks about property and also in Book 2, where Aristotle argues against Plato, that is, the Platonic notion 
that authority in the state requires guardians or rulers, he says, amounts to an excessive unity in the state. Now, the argument about property is this, that Aristotle says it's not good that there be only communal property. Private property is a good thing and his argument is that that which is common property is often neglected and not cared for. So you see the idea he's making that particular people will care for their particular property and that's good for the common good. Whereas if one adopts some kind of socialist notion of communal ownership, Aristotle says, in fact, it will mean that the property is neglected, let alone putting that together with his later argument against tyranny, that tyrants seek to pose or set up obstacles for individual initiative and take away the means of action. So one of the great tasks, I think, for the contemporary Thomistic philosophy in light of totalitarianism. See, totalitarianism is that philosophy of government which claims to have total control or a concern for the total well-being or aspect of the citizen is what Yves Simone says, a duty to keep the state confined within its function and hold in check its threatening tendency to trespass or invade and destroy. That's on page 134 of Philosophy of Democratic Government. So Simone draws the conclusion, the salvation of society today depends upon institutions provided with the power of resistance. See again, why it's so important to look at that definition of a slave and the operation of tyranny. A slave has no resistance. Thomas Aquinas takes that as a defining feature of political rule is that those who are ruled politically can offer resistance. Now by resistance he doesn't mean armed resistance or rebellion. He just means that one has one's own mind, that one has one's own choice, that groups and associations of people can offer resistance in the sense of taking the initiative to do things according to their judgment and not the judgment of the one king or the one government bureaucrat. So to finish Simone's thought, the salvation of society depends upon institutions provided with the power of resistance. And he mentions particularly the institution of private property, the church, a free press, the private school, the labor union, free enterprise. So. You see, even these things are in some ways involving pre-political phenomenon like private property and may involve non-political, trans-political institutions like the church or involve economics, labor unions, and free enterprise. They matter very much for a political philosophy today in order to keep that idea of the common good with its richness. To go back to Maritain's man in the state, the body politic should include a multiplicity 
of particular societies which proceed from the free initiative of citizens, which should be autonomous as possible and have the protection and recognition of government or institutional recognition. So I think this leads us to a certain completion of the Aristotelian analysis of politics and in a way brings it when we read Maritain and Yves Simon up to a better understanding of our own democratic societies today. Just to do a quick review here and then our next step will be to think about some of the specific issues of modern liberal democracy and how Aristotle, Aquinas, and again Maritain and Simon have been able to blend or merge together the ancient political philosophy of Aristotle and Aquinas with a sense of modern political achievement. But what we have looked at then and where we began and where I hope we have now arrived is we began with a sense of man being social and political by nature. This is the fundamental axiom for Aristotle and Thomistic political philosophy. We went from there to look at the various forms of pre-political rule to understand that what is distinctively political is that achievement beyond the household. That is a form of rule which is not master-slave, which is not a household husband and wife relationship, that is not a paternal relationship, but enters into its own distinctive excellence, which is a relationship between equals, a relationship involving public debate, a relationship that involves the capacity to choose and to participate in the choice that the city makes and to participate in the common good. That then led to a definition of the political regime and into an intricate analysis that Aristotle does of the various claims to rule. These are the contentious claims of politics about what is just and who ought to rule and for what purpose. And as we've seen, Aristotle does try to give credence to each claim, but also to acknowledge the limits and weaknesses. The failure to appreciate the limits of one's own claim, that is the failure to move beyond what in contemporary jargon could be called partisan politics, the failure to see that one's own particular interest or even claim of principle has a certain limitation to it. Aristotle saw would lead to instability and ultimately the loss of freedom. That any of the claims when absolutized at best would lead to the domination of the kingly principle and at worst would lead to tyranny, to silence and violence. So what I think we find in Maritain and Simon and in Catholic social teaching generally is a deep appreciation 
of this principle of subsidiarity that, or structural pluralism, that there should be, in addition to the initiative of the state and the functions of the political office, much room made for intermediate groups. And again, I think Tocqueville is our great leader and guide here in understanding how intermediate groups work in modern democracy so that the very goals of political society that Aristotle lays out, that is, achieving the good life, developing good habits, developing intellectual as well as moral virtue, can be done in a way that is consistent with freedom and stability. So our next step will be to look at more specific claims of democracy today and the superiority of democratic regimes. And I might add the achievement of modern politics and that has to do with the claim and protection of individual rights. I think perhaps the greatest challenge to the Aristotelian and the Thomist political philosopher was to come to terms with the modern teaching of rights. One reason, as we will see next lesson, is that the modern account of rights, which derives from Hobbes and Locke, contradicts many of the fundamental principles of Aristotelian political philosophy, and I would say, I think, the truth of human nature. That is, Hobbes and Locke derive their notion of rights from an isolated individual who is not social by nature. If anything is dissociated from others by nature and in an antagonistic relationship to others, this modern teaching of rights can often lead to political positions and understandings that are not compatible with human flourishing. And so our great challenge will be can there be a reading of modern rights in light of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas? And we'll save that task for our next lesson. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.